0: I was probably seven years old. I saw some movie about a girl hopping boxcar trains, and I was just like, that is what I want to do. I just want to live a life of adventure.
1: Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgings. And I am Anson Mountain. Remember back when we first started this podcast, we wanted to explore human creativity, right? Right. Right. That was the original intent. Yes. We've mostly been on target. I hope so. Okay, good thing. Because otherwise I'd have to scrap this episode. (laughs) Um, Well, I thought, what better way to kick off the season than to reconnect with the origins of this podcast than to create to the roots of human creativity?
2: The roots of human creativity? Creativity aside, that's that's a very tall order, Brandon.
1: It is a tall order, but you go back to the beginning, and that is what differentiates our species: is our creativity, It's our ability to take to look at two things and come up with a weird third or fourth option, right? Uh, and seeing beyond the obvious, and using our intellect to adapt uh, the environment to fit us, mm-hmm. rather than rely on slow evolution, you know, right. To, right? So can you think of an example? Like, how do you adapt the environment to, to, to suit you?
2: Well, clothing mm-hmm. is one of the most obvious, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Internal combustion engines. <laughs> I guess that's not really
1: adapting the environment;
2: that's adapting our speed.
1: No, but that um, is, that is the environment. Right. If you get into, if you want to get really off the rails here and talk about space time, yeah, it was a way of conquering well, the limits when, of space time. When
2: you think about the, 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 they say, what do we learn in school? The, the three things for survival are, or food, water, and shelter. Right. Mm-hmm. I like to throw drama in there sometimes. <laughs> but uh, when you think about, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Uh, industrialized agriculture Mm -hmm. is a very good example.
1: Yeah. That's a great one. Right. And, or every time you use a knife, we have knives because we don't have claws. I mean, we Mm -hmm. invented all of these things because evolution gave us a giant brain, but made us kind of, uh, weak and futile. And in every other way, I mean, there is no, any other animal you care to name practically is toothier than we are stronger, faster in some ways, uh, can fly, can breathe underwater. You know, you had right. to invent tools for all of these things. When I first thought about this episode, I started looking around for survival coaches to interview, you know, people who are experts at what we just discussed, right? right? The earliest, you know, an expert in what makes our species different, the able to look at the environment and pick things up out of it and adapt it and make it fit to our needs. Right. Mm-hmm. So I started looking around for survival coaches, which led me down this YouTube rabbit hole looking for survival experts. Uh, most of them have an apocalypse fetish. Uh, <laughs> right. A lot are just trying to look tough and be badass. Uh, a lot of them are conspiracy minded doomsday preppers. A lot of them seemed crazy. <laughs> I'm preparing for a coronal mass ejection in 2012. It started out with chickens, and then he decided to build his own bunker. I believe there's going to be huge earthquakes. I believe there will also be panic in the streets. Society will fall apart within days. People are going to literally kill each other for what little
0: scraps there are.
1: It'll be the good against the evil. Only the strong will survive.
0: Stockpiling Bibles, gathering supplies, making bunkers,
2: training children.
1: We have no other interest or purpose in life other than preparing for some Armageddon.
2: She's busy prepping her family for the end of the world.
1: And I wasn't interested in any of that. I wanted to know how humans learned to adapt. Until one day, I randomly came across this YouTube channel.
0: Hi, this is Tom McElroy at Wild Survival Skills. In this video, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to travel a half mile into a cave using only primitive means. At the back end of this cave is an absolutely pure vein of clay that I'm going to collect to make pottery from so that I can purify acorns, make acorn flour, and eventually bread. Before I do any of this, though, I need to think about what tools I need to get in and out of this cave safely.
1: And the first thing that struck me about him, and the very thing that endeared me to him, was his calm. Even when, at one point later in the video, his pine cone and sap torches go out, and he's in almost complete darkness. But he stays calm and is able to relight his torches using an ember from a shaga fungus, which he thoughtfully brought with him in case this sort of thing happened.
0: How my lights go out? It's a little bit terrifying to be out here with zero light if this doesn't work, but it looks like it's gonna work.
1: Now, at this point in the video, Tom is in a cave in complete darkness kneeling over some embers and blowing on them to try to get them to reignite.
0: Okay, I just blew my chag against my tinder, and I'm back in business. I really needed to light these pine cones and get my torches lit again.
1: My first thought was, wow, in a survival situation, this is the guy I would trust. And that's when I thought, hey... Why just interview this guy when I could go take his classes and then make an episode about that? So, about a year and an entire lifetime ago, we had our first Indiegogo campaign to send me off to a survival school, a tropical island in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where Tom and his friend Matt host small classes of about 10 to 20 people. If you want to see that video, we just released it on YouTube, so go check that out. And that video became such a big project that I almost forgot the whole point was to interview Tom. So finally, a full year after taking his survival training course, we hooked up via Zoom where I finally asked him, how does one set out to become a survival expert?
0: Were you the self-reliant type? Were you a loner? I had some friends, but mostly I was, uh, I spent a lot of time alone. Like I just sit against a tree where the deer were eating acorns and had broken the snow. And I'd just sit there for hours and wait for the deer to come back and they'd all surround me and stuff. And that was what I would do for entertainment, you know? So, like, I kind of kept it a little hidden because I didn't want to be totally weird. But, um, yeah, there was always that part of me that was totally content to just, like, sit in the woods and watch nature go by. There's a monk-like quality
1: to that. Was there a a formal spirituality into your upbringing? Or if not, did
0: you develop your own? or? My mom was a nun and my dad was a monk. Um, <laughs> so, yes, um, they're both Catholic. And so I was raised Catholic. And so they were school teachers at a cap- different Catholic schools, boys and girls schools that never mingled. And it was in the 60s when sex ed was coming out and they're just showing bringing sex ed into Catholic schools. And so they pulled six teachers from the boys school, six teachers from the girls school to preview this sex ed video. It was probably one of those old 60 ones of like, make sure to dance six feet apart. Um, right. And so my parents met when they're a monk and a nun while watching a sex ed video. <laughs> and somehow in the midst of that, fell in love and snuck around the monastery for about a year. And, you know, my mom decided that she didn't she wanted to have a family and she wanted to have kids and all that. And my dad, you know, who knows what was in that video, but it must have been good. Decided he was going to go for that plan, <laughs> and they ran away and had five, uh, you know, Irish Catholic kids. Um, and so, yeah, I was definitely raised with that, and I I liked aspects of it, and I definitely shed it after a while. Um, but you know, to agree, there was part of me that was really searching, and and you know, dreaming of being that Taoist priest that would wander through the wilderness, kind of trying to attain. Peace and answers and enlightenment and everything else. Have you found it? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You know, I'm pretty happy, so there's times that I'm like, oh, I, I must have found something, you know? I definitely just, you know. But no, I mean, I can't tell you anything.
1: That's so, that's, that's amazing. I mean, do you feel like you're, in a way, kind of primed for this direction in life <laughs> by... You know, but no, Well, but by being, you know, like your parents were clearly very intentional people. Like,
0: I think the one thing that really helped, I don't know the answer to that necessarily, but I would say the one thing that helped is that my parents were very accepting. You know, I was definitely all over the map in high school. I didn't have much focus. I was always staring out the window, like just wanting to like go hop a boxcar train and stuff. And so I, they knew I didn't have any real interest in, in much else. The town I grew up in was definitely like a wealthy town, um, very like, how would you put it? I'm very successful people that expect their kids to be incredibly successful. And like every kid I went to school with was going to like some top school somewhere. And every day in high school, you were reminded that like, if you didn't get straight A's and go to the best school that you're going to be flipping burgers and McDonald's and be a total loser. And I kind of grew up just um, really rejecting that, you know, just being like, you know what, like I see the product of that. I mean, you know, they always say you have your teachers that inspire you and are some of your greatest teachers but then there's the teachers that are just as equally powerful are the ones that show you what not to be one of
1: those teachers was a man who used to come into the video rental store tom worked at when he was
0: 15 yeah, the guy was rich and he had like five businesses in town but he was just the most miserable guy that i've ever met in my life and he hated his wife and he's always pissed at his kids and he's always you know just miserable and i was like god like that is just not who i want to be and and, uh, you know, you just think about like, all right, you know, this is i I'm sure he started off with the best intentions, but he ended up here. So it's like, what are the pitfalls and what are the traps that all these people fall into? I want to give people credit that have kind of fallen into that trap, but like, how did they do it? Cause they started off with good intentions and then their lives kind of got to a place where they just kind of gave up and, and, you know, not to be judgmental life is hard. You know, I've been there it beats you up Always wanted to just live a different life, you know, not throw away the present in order to prepare for the future. Growing up where I grew up kind of helped with that in a way of like saying like, okay, here it is. This is the pinnacle of the American dream, that dream, and it doesn't look that great to me. Tom saw what he didn't want to do, but now what?
1: How does one take the difficult path when the easy path is already marked out and paved for you? That's a hard thing to do, to ignore the strident commands of the elders to prepare for the future learn something practical, et cetera, et cetera. The socioeconomic conveyor belt that transports us from colorful childhood dreams to drab adult realities is a hard track to get off of. And Tom could see it was starting to happen as early as high school.
0: There was a, you know, a contingent of my high school class that would talk about things like that. Like, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to live the dream. And And then pressures mounted as like it was time to take the SATs and it was time to get ready for college. And all these people suddenly were like, oh, no, I'm going to take the SATs and go to school. And, you know, and I was like, no, you're going down the path that everybody else is that we said we wouldn't. And I guess I'm just stubborn, but I was like, nope, I'm not doing it. High school guidance counselors were not any help either. But they're like, so what school are you going to go to? And I was like, no, I'm going to go live in the woods. (laughs) And he's just like, uh yeah, you should, it looks like maybe you should be like a forest ranger. Maybe you can get into forestry or, you know, he's just just trying to find something. (laughs) And he said, do you have any plans? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go live in the woods in front of this. Like this girl next to me, I remember was the class president. And she was like the straight A student, perfect model student, you know? And yeah, the, the collective eye roll in the room was um, pretty funny and, and, and also pretty motivating of like, okay, you guys are all, you know, if I don't do this, I'm proving you right. Like all those eye rolls are going to be right in a couple of years.
1: So with no real guidance from the guidance counselor and a motivation to prove his classmates wrong, Tom had to get serious about this crazy idea to go live in the woods.
0: So he got disciplined. I cut out partying, cut out drinking for probably a decade. And he started reading. I got into reading about some people that were like doing wilderness survival instead of, Um, You know, eating out of dumpsters like Kerouac or starving to death in the woods like John Muir, they were like, in my opinion, the ultimate travelers were people that could just wander into the woods and they wanted to and go hunt something and go gather edible plants. And they just didn't need to depend on society in order to have those adventures.
1: And started taking classes.
0: And I just poured myself into it. I worked to earn as much money to keep going back and taking every class I could. With some book learning under his belt,
1: Tom knew he needed an experienced teacher to give him hands-on experience. This led him to Tom
0: Brown. He's one of the first guys back in like the 70s that had started up a wilderness survival school. And and he was brought up by an Apache Native American guy that taught him all this stuff. And so back then, he was pretty much the only guy to go to like in the world. Like there was little schools here and there, but Tom Brown was like the Bear Grylls name of, of survival.
1: Now, Tom Brown may have been the Bear Grylls of his day, but he was nothing like Bear Grylls. Listen to some of this old video of Tom from the early 80s.
0: One of the first
1: things that grandfather taught us about moving in the woods was to slow down. It was a technique that he called the sacred silence. The silencing of a man's mind and his soul to meet the heartbeat of creation. The mind has got to be stilled of thoughts. Grandfather referred to the thoughts as ripples on a quiet pond that distort the images. When your mind is clear, it's like the surface of a quiet pond. There's a pure reflection. There's no disturbances, no qualifiers. There's no definitions or analysis. There is no time or place. There is just you and nature.
0: He had land that was about 10 miles out into the woods in the Pine Barrens in in southern New Jersey. And there was nothing really on it. There was a couple, like, tarp shelters. And he was just like, hey, I need a couple people to watch over my land to make sure that, like, you know, motorcyclists out in the woods don't, you know, get on the land and destroy it or have huge bonfires. And so I just need three people to, like, go live out there. I remember coming home at one point and just you know, at 18 years old and saying, Hey mom, dad, I'm going to go live in the woods for a year. <laughs> Within a week, I packed all my stuff and had moved out and driven to the pine barrens where I live. And I think my parents at that point, they knew I was a dreamer and I most of the time failed and came with my tail tucked between my legs home like a week later. So I don't think they thought that was yeah. actually going to, going to actually be anything. So they were like, oh, okay, cool. And so I disappeared for about, five or six months before I left and I finally decided that it was about time to like go out and make a phone call at the state park that I was nearby and call my mom and so I finally called her and she was so pissed and she just you know she's I thought you were dead like what the hell are you doing and I said I told you I was gonna go live in the woods for a year and you know I don't think a lot of parents would have probably called the police by that point and you know so I have to say that they understood that I was like searching for something and that they let me do it and they understood that I was what i was doing even if it wasn't you know in the same way that they were i think they understood that feeling and so i went out there with this other guy named dan that was taking survival classes and he stayed the summer and then he he went he was going to go home for a couple days uh in canada and visit his parents and he met a girl and fell in love and never came back and so then i had two months totally alone how do you think you would deal with that or would you even
1: want to
2: I, I, I think I would. I think a part of me would. I at this point in my life, I, of course, I would miss my wife terribly, and becoming a father. I just uh, that's clearly something I'm not going to do for a while. But just a, like as jumping a, out of a plane, as an, 18-year-old. as an
1: eighteen-year-old, as an eighteen-year-old, as <laughs> an eighteen-year-old. Oh
2: yeah, I I I worked in uh, some summer camps, and um, I I could definitely see myself doing that at that age. I think. Um, I think I would have adapted with the right education. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would have listened and learned and, um, yeah, absolutely.
1: But that level of isolation of being not seeing or talking to another human being for months and months.
2: You're talking to Anson. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Sorry. I I thought it was somebody. I think I'd be okay, (laughs) (laughs) but that's just me. I know that a lot of people, um, it actually scares a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, um, you know, these Vipassana retreats where you go and you're you're not allowed to speak, read, write for 10 days. Um, it scares people's, people's own heads scare them. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I I would like to think that I could do that, right? A- yeah. Even 18-year-old me. You know what? Maybe 18-year-old me would have been better at it, frankly. Um But when I go up to the cabin, say, I'll try to do these, like, just five, not even that long, like a one-week thing up at the cabin. And I always go through the same cycle of first night feels weird because I'm, like, in the woods by myself. Uh, Sharon's not there. Nobody's there. And it feels a little dangerous. There's this sense of you do feel cut off. You do start to feel like, man, if something happens... (laughs) <laughs> I'm really in trouble here, <laughs> and you're, it's weird how your mind immediately goes to safety, um, in that in that in that context. But then what happens is I start feeling freedom, you know, and then the second night feels good, third night feels great. I'm just like, oh man, this is freedom. I can walk around at crazy, talk to myself, you know, do whatever I want, totally, you know, unfettered, do anything, anytime. Um, And that lasts about till day five. And day six starts to feel weird again. (laughs) And then I start to feel like I'm like something's crazy about it. Like I now I want to, I'm having all these thoughts, I'm having all these experiences and there's no one to share them with. And that starts to get then that starts to get to me. And then it doesn't feel like freedom anymore. Then it starts to feel lonely.
2: <laughs> yeah, we are social animals. This this is why mm-hmm. people in solitary confinement lose their minds. Oh yeah, because we we our sense of identity comes from our relationships and our interactions.
1: So how long do you think you could do it?
2: Six months is quite long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't know because I've never I've never tried anything remotely like this. <laughs> I I think I'd be good for a couple of months. Wow. Maybe a month. It'll, I think I could do a month.
1: Well, maybe you could. No, you're never going to know until, you, until sure. you try it. And now you're not going to try it. So no. we'll never know. And you'll never know. No. But, uh, you know, Tom went and did it. You know, it maybe it was the kind of thing that you have to try when you're young because, like I said, I think being young and feeling a little invincible probably helps with that whole mentality. Like, sure, I'll go off in the woods by myself. <laughs> right. What's the worst that can happen? You know, yeah. that's a very 18-year-old sort of mentality to have. Um but yeah, I think Tom discovered that there were uh it wasn't the physical challenge of it.
0: It became a emotional, spiritual challenge. It was hard, but I was definitely looking forward to it. I was like, okay, like this is what I came here to do. Like let me see if I can be totally alone so even if like there was a, they had cut a power line through these woods that motorcyclists would drive up and down. Um, and even if I got near that, I would hide, you know, to make sure I didn't even have any sight of a human being or anything like that. Like I was very much trying to have that like total asceticism. Like I'm not a part of the outside world. Like I've created my own bubble and I belong in here. Like the, you know, like the animals do and everything else. And, um, yeah, it was pretty weird, but, uh, you know, it, when, it, when you're in your own little bubble, everything seems normal. It's it's only when you look from the outside that you go, oh, yeah, it's kind of strange. Um, but amazing, you know, an amazing experience. Like, I just grew so much in that year. If you can imagine, like, at the most pinnacle moment of, like, becoming an adult, you're living in the woods and struggling with not only providing for yourself and survival, but also just dealing with all the emotional, um, you know, what would coming of age kind of things that you would happen upon when you're living alone and, and trying to fend for yourself. And so I definitely came back a changed person, like a a totally different person. And I think when I finally got back, I remember my mom saying at one point, she's like, God, everybody should do this. Like, this is crazy. Like you've matured, you've, you know, really grown, you've, you know, all the things that, you know, I would have thought would have taken like another decade, you know, all happened in that year. And so, yeah, it was an accelerated time. Like I think any extreme any extreme time of your life is like, there's an accelerated learning process to that. Could you feel yourself changing? Or
1: is it one of those things that once you put yourself back into an old context that you realize, Oh, whoa, I'm, I've shifted.
0: Uh, I would actually say I would, I'd say if I knew it at the time it was really hard. Like people always think of the survival part when I'm like, Oh, I did survival in the woods for a year. And people always think like, you know, Oh, what'd you eat? What'd you do for this? You know? And really the thing that was the hardest, it was a, it was a big winter. So it was actually the winter of 95, 96 on the East coast. And it was just a huge winter. And so we had tons of snow, very cold temperatures. Um, and so, you know, I was living in a leaf hut that was probably about an eight foot diameter circle with like a teepee with cover of leaves on top of it. And, um, and when it was snowing and then it would melt because you were kind of near the ocean, it would just be slush outside. And I couldn't go out into the slush and soak these I had these horrible boots. They weren't like waterproof or anything like that. Um, and so I was really stuck in the shelter for a lot of a lot of time. And I think the hardest part of the entire experience was like dealing with the, you know, your own brain and your own thoughts constantly swirling and needing more entertainment than you're giving them. Um, And it's kind of like being in, um, what do you call it when you're in prison and they, they lock you away in in isolation. Solitary. Yeah. Solitary confinement. I'd just be walking down the trail and all of a sudden I'd just be so depressed. Like the littlest things would just make you so depressed. And you, then it was just this unpacking of like, why am I an emotional mess right now? Like, why am I not able to just be happy? And so there was a ton of struggle, especially in winter when it was just like, you're alone with your thoughts for, um. You know, I didn't really talk to the other guys that lived out there very much. We didn't hang out all that much, you know, so it's tons of alone time to deal with your own thoughts. And so it's just so much unpacking of, like, your own emotional foundation um, and how it controls who you are. Did that come as a surprise to you, those sorts of... uh... Yeah, I thought I was a very well-balanced 18-year-old going in there, you know, and then I just realized, like, wow, like, there is so much, like, it was very cathartic, but in that catharsis of, like, stuff coming up, you know, of, like you know, realizing, like, how addicted you are to these, like you said, the social element or, or even the, the technological element or just the, the, the fact that your brain needs to constantly be entertained. It always has to watch TV or go to the bar or listen to the radio or be on the phone or something um, when you don't have any of that. Like, what does your brain do? And how do you just achieve stillness and be okay with, like, sitting next to a tree for hours and letting the clouds go by? Um, And I realized that like that's a talent, you know, like If you watch like the tigers sitting in the Sahara They'll just lay there for hours and hours and hours and watch stuff go by But humans can't do that When your brain needs more entertainment than you're getting it it almost like makes life a little bit painful for you Um, But in that it taught me to like Deal with okay. How do I how do I stay entertained when nobody else is praising me for doing what I'm doing Um, How do I learn to actually be passionate about what I'm doing so much that I'm not doing it to seek any reward and praise? I'm only doing it because I like doing it. And I think that was really big for me because I think as a kid, like every kid when, you know, in ceramics class in high school or whatever, you know, make something like I'm doing it for my mom. Like you do everything that you do to get some sort of external praise. And I think that's also why like social media is so so incredibly successful is that, you know, everybody's looking for external validation. And when I walked into the woods for an entire year, I had no external validation. You know, maybe in my head I could think about like why people would think it was cool what I was doing, but that fades pretty quickly and and so I think that was it. Probably one of the biggest lessons of like if you're doing something, make sure you're doing it because you actually enjoy it. I don't believe that you know this is the solution as we should all be going alone I think it's a great thing to do for a little bit my goal was to live the entire year and I was two weeks shy of a year and I just woke up one day and I'm like what am I doing like I'm this is I'm sick of it I'm so sick of it I just want to go talk to people and hang out with people <laughs> and it's <laughs> no big deal you know I don't care if I hit the year mark or anything like that but that was the original goal and I just got up one day literally one day I got up and I'm like nope I'm done and I walked out of the woods, and I found my car, and this uh, I parked it in somebody's backyard about 15 miles away, and uh, hopped in my car and drove home, and I was like, yep, that's it, I'm done. And it was just at that breaking point where I thought, like, you know what, we're not supposed to live like this, and it's a—it's an amazing learning experience, but this isn't a long-term way to find happiness, and I think even uh, Christopher McCandless wrote that in his journal, where he wrote, happiness is best when shared. Um... And I think that's true, and I I learned so much about being alone, but would I want to do it again? No, never.
1: Sociability is a core feature of our species, and we need to practice it to be any good at it. But after living alone for a year,
0: Tom was a
1: bit out of practice.
0: I just had this life-altering experience where there was a very much like us and them kind of thing when I lived in the woods, where it was just like, you know, any, anybody from the outside world was really a removed human being, like a different species that I would hide from if they ever entered my, my area. And so there's a huge us versus them kind of mentality, and then all of a sudden I kind of throw myself back into the, real, the outside world and have to fit in, and I don't. You know, and I spend a year really struggling with, like, how to be social in large groups and things like that. Tom would have to learn to be social
1: again because he needed a job. And at this point he was getting pretty good with his survival skills.
0: And then I got hired with that guy, Tom Brown. He was the only survival school in the world, really. And it was just before Y2K when all the computers were gonna shut down and the world was gonna end.
1: Almost everyone is preparing for
2: the worst. Tens of thousands of police officers on high alert. Eight to 10% of the population were fairly confident that this was gonna be uh, an apocalypse.
0: So typically, they had about 100 students per week, and we were packing them in about 150 every week. And we couldn't turn people away, because everybody thought the world was going to end, and they all had to go live in the woods and um, learn how to make a bow drill fire. And uh, so natural disaster definitely brought on um a huge opportunity the end of the world is business and business is good i mean it was <laughs> it was uh y2k was a good one 2012 with the mayan calendar was huge um and then yeah nowadays it's mostly fueled by the survival tv shows um but i'm sure if there's a comet that's getting anywhere near earth classes will fill up <laughs> and i mean honestly there's a contingent of 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 survival instructors out there that that really push that you know like oh my god the world's gonna end and you need to be the only one that makes it you know and i don't really get into all that you know i just i like being in the woods i'm not trying to like get students to join just because they're afraid of uh society collapsing but um but yeah it definitely helps business in that five-year period, we probably had 20,000 people through classes. We knew we were on to something. Like, it was one of those things that was so great. And once people get introduced to it, they would kind of find this, like, that it was triggering instincts that they didn't know they had, that they suddenly were like, wow, I've never felt, you know, I've always felt out of place and unhappy in my life. And all of a sudden, I'm out here carving a stick next to a fire or breaking rocks and making spears or... You know, weaving a basket with a bunch of people around a, a campfire and there's something so inherent about doing that and it might take a week or a little more to set in you know but once it sets in people go wow this feels so right like they we've we've done these things for a hundred thousand years um as a you know as homo sapiens and and We've only not been doing them for, you know, a tiny little portion of that. And so it's so ingrained in our instincts to continue to do those things that at the time we just knew like we're onto something like there's something really, really big here that's so amazing. And in a way, I think I always knew that the outside world was going to adopt it a whole lot more. I don't know what people imagine as the type of person who goes and takes a class like this. What's the, is there a common denominator? No. I mean, that's. I think that's the thing that's the coolest part about these classes is you definitely would think you would get your soldier of fortune kind of, um, you know, uh, militia member or something like that. And that would be who would want to take survival classes. But a lot of times, I mean, the island classes, um, a lot of it's people just kind of want to do it. You know, it's a bucket list adventure item. I get, you know, super incredibly wealthy people. I get, um, you know, dirt poor people, but You get the back to earther kind of people that just would like being out in nature, which is, you know, more of the type that I think I attract um, just because I'm not a soldier of fortune kind of guy myself. But it's the coolest thing, because in the middle of classes, a lot of times people don't know what everybody else does. And, you know, I had an island class just before the pandemic where um, the guy owned the franchises of um, companies throughout the U.S. And he's probably worth, you know maybe a hundred million or something like that. And, you know, he's on an Island with a bunch of other people that are sitting next to him around the fire that are dirty and, you know, everybody's dirty and everybody has a role and it's a great equalizer. Cause it very quickly, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the outside world. It's like, Hey, can you catch a fish or can you make a fire or, you know, what can you do right now to help us out? And so your, your value as far as like how successful you are in the outside world just falls away. And so a lot of times I know, and nobody else knows in the classes and I just keep it that way. And I think it's, I think it's awesome because, um, it's a great way for everybody to accept each other for who they are.
1: And normally you have a mix of men and women in the class, but, but in
0: the class I took from you, it was all dudes. That's right. It was the dynamic is very different when it's just guys. Um, the difference I've noticed when I have men and women in those situations is that they're both coming in with equal amount of skill. Um, neither is better. I think generally when women come into it, they come into it with this attitude of like, this is going to be hard on occasion. I'm going to break down. I might cry. I might have an emotional moment. I might need to like, you know, how am I going to get through that? They mentally prep themselves to be like, okay, some of this is going to be really, really tough for me. um, And so when that happens, they're very prepared to be like, okay, I've just hit my wall. How am I going to get through it? I've got a plan in place. I've been thinking about this for weeks. When guys get out there, they come in with this, like, I'm going to be awesome and I'm going to just climb coconut trees and I'm going to kill fish and it's going to be the greatest and I don't care. And that nothing will affect me, you know, and all of a sudden you get out there and it's hard, you know, and you hit that wall, you can hit that wall very quickly. Um, that makes you feel like running for home. And I think be ju- only because guys haven't prepared themselves to be like, okay, this is actually going to happen. They're a little bit surprised by um, maybe they're not as, as tough as they think they are when they're sitting on their couch, watching a survival TV show. Um, and then they're just not prepared for that moment, <laughs> you know, and it happens to everybody. I mean, I'm, I always tell the group before we go out into survival alone, I'm like, Hey, Matt and I are in this with you. Like, you know, there's going to be moments where we are, you know, we hit our wall, too. And we're hungry and we're, you know, at our limit as well. And, you know, we, we've we got more experience, so we'll probably get through it a little bit better. But, you know, we're all in that together.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the sense of being in it together grew over time. At the, at the very beginning, it was just, let's all just, we were all strangers. We didn't know each other. We just sort of, let's all just hang back and watch Tom and Matt do their thing. And we kind of wanted to hang back a little bit because we felt a little bit on display for each other. You know, you could really... (laughs) It ultimately led to a kind of male bonding where everyone uh, found their individual strengths, you know. But at the beginning, it was just, well, when it comes my turn, I just... I don't know. I
0: I just don't want to be the one guy that, like... Starts crying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. I mean, it was a good, you know, and I think it's important to have those trips, too, where it's just all guys. And there was a a good component to that. Um, But I think the thing I noticed is that it wasn't just me and Matt. Like, everybody was contributing pretty much at all times. And, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that, like, I've had classes where... I know going in that like by the end of this we're going to be close like we're all going to know each other really really well but it's interesting to you all start off strangers and going through it so many times um you know I've had some classes that end and like everybody is just literally best friends for years and and still chats on WhatsApp like every other day there's a camaraderie in knowing that you're all going through the same experience and also
1: discovering each other's strengths no one ever assigned each other roles or tasks, you just start picking it up. We, you know, non-verbally, you just start picking up like, so-and-so's good at this and... So he's gonna do
0: more of that, and I'm gonna go do the other thing because that seems to be what I'm what I'm enjoying. Yeah, and you you find your own strength, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh cool, I have value in this tribe. You're like they're not gonna vote me off the island. You know, I'm just gonna keep making rope because that other dude's really good at fishing with it, or or I'm gonna you know <laughs> right. collect firewood, or or I'm really good at climbing trees and getting mangoes. But like, yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, once you find your value, you just want to keep doing that over and over and over, and then everybody else appreciates it because then they can move on to their strength and i imagine in tribes it was that way too where it was like somebody was an amazing hunter and somebody was an amazing basket weaver and somebody was an amazing fire maker and so there was no like competition in those things it was just like everybody focused on their strength and then it worked out really well that my experience of your class or most classes is you don't have the boss anybody around you know you just kind of you know people start to say hey i'm cold i'm gonna go make a fire and i think that's a great thing about survival is that There was no, there's no like waiting around for somebody else to do things for you. Like, it's just kind of like, if you're cold, go get some wood and make a fire, you know, like either either do something or you suffer the consequences of not doing it. So when people
1: were not motivated by the latest threat of impending doom, they came to Tom's classes in the hopes of learning how to live a simpler life. But a new cultural phenomenon was on the horizon.
0: It was a little disheartening when, you know, the reason that it got adopted was Survivor came out in about 2000, and that was just this huge hit right off the bat. Remember Extra? I don't know if that TV show is still on the air. It was like a news program, like Extra, Extra. Extra, extra. So we would go on after Survivor and basically critique what they had done. Um, So they would show us the footage of Survivor as it was playing, and then we would interrupt and say, oh, hey... Why is this guy doing push-ups on the beach when he should be building a shelter, you know, and, or, you know, they're doing the drill wrong or whatever. Um, so it wasn't, I guess it wasn't consulting, it was more critiquing. After a brief
1: stint critiquing Survivor, Tom started thinking about job security. So he went back to college and studied anthropology with an eye towards giving back.
0: Because I kind of felt like all of this knowledge that I was passing down in survival skills came from indigenous people. And I was just taking all that knowledge that they had preserved and passing it on to a bunch of white people or Western people, you know, and I didn't feel great about that. It just felt like it, I was another taker. Um, and so I wanted to kind of start working with indigenous people. In, um so I studied anthropology and then I got my master's studying um, international policy. Uh, which had a focus on, like, UN human rights. That's kind of where I traveled the world for a long time and lived with tribes. A lot of the stuff, like, when I was living with the Wurrani, like, I'd spend two minutes a day talking about human rights in the UN and then the rest of the day (laughs) hunting monkeys with blowguns. But I figured if I was going to do that, I might as well, like, get a degree at the same time.
1: During this time, Tom also consulted on movies such as M. Night Shyamalan's The Village and William Friedkin's The Hunted. Trained him to survive. I trained him to kill. Most of the people he killed never knew he was in the same room with him. It was fun, but maybe not a career. Like many of us, Tom had put his time in. His passions had carried him to this
0: point, but now what? Looking back at it now, it all seems kind of like a straight line kind of thing. But you know, you just choose. We all choose these weird little worlds that we enter. You know, I think the thing is I've just kept going down this rabbit hole of like, you know, traveling the world, living with tribes like, you know, it's incredible the doors that's opened for me and the opportunities I've had because of it. Um, I still I'm kind of like, wow, how did this all come together this way? Isn't that
1: funny? Your own exact position in life ends up being a mystery to yourself.
0: Yeah, it seemed like I chose it all. You know, like I planned this from the beginning, but it really was just like, You know, it's one of those things where you get good at something and then all of a sudden that's what you do. And then you get better at it because that's what people want to hire you for or that's the the opportunities (laughs) that open to you. And suddenly you're 44 and you're like, Jesus, like I am so far down the rabbit hole. I wouldn't even know what else to do if I had the opportunity. Um, And, yeah, I guess that's where I find myself now. And I love it, which is great. I mean, I'm very fortunate in that way. It's like I think a lot of people go down a rabbit hole they didn't want to go down and then, you know, I remember somebody once saying, like, be careful what you get good at, because it really does. Once you're good at something, it's hard to do anything else.
1: In the next episode, we'll get into Tom's adventures living with indigenous people and the world of reality TV. Guess which one is crazier? Find out next time on part two. The Well is written, produced, and recorded by Anson Mount and Brandon Edgins. Theme music, written and performed by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music for this episode, written and performed by Brandon Edgins. Special thanks to Tom McElroy for sitting down and talking with me and for earlier taking me out into the jungle and taking care of me. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.